0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. The series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and moment. My name is Aliza Arjan. Today, I'm joined by Shannon Mattern, Professor of Anthropology at the New School for Social Research. We'll be talking about her book, A City is Not a Computer, Other Urban Intelligences, recently published by Princeton University Press. So thank you very much, Professor Mattern, for joining us today.
1: Thank you very much for having me, and please call me Shannon.
0: (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Um, So, Shannon, at the New Books Network, we like to start by getting to know our authors. And, you know, since I've been such a big fan of your work, I think I'm a little bit familiar, but if you could tell us about your interdisciplinary background and how it's led you to conceive of this book, I think our listeners would really appreciate it. Sure.
1: Um, So, I... Started off as an undergraduate, as a chemistry major, thinking I wanted to go to medical school. Also <laughs> added uh, literature as kind of an escape from the chemistry. Ultimately realized that's where my passions were kind of directing, were directing mm-hmm. me. Um, graduated with, um, in literature and, and media studies, then did a PhD in, um, in media studies at NYU. But while I was there, I took a lot of classes in architecture and urban history and theory because I was especially interested, having moved from a small town to New York City, and how the city itself was a medium for communication. Um, after finishing my PhD, I did a postdoctoral fellowship in art history and came to really appreciate how art was such a wonderful thing to teach through and to think about theory through. Mm-hmm. And you can see that in the book and a lot of my mm-hmm. teaching in the past 20 years, too. Um, and then I got a, a job at the New School in Media Studies, where I was for 15 years. And there, again, I taught across multiple divisions. I had a, always had a lot of students from the architecture, urbanism programs, design and technology programs in my classes, which really made for a very fruitful cross-pollination, I think, for the students. they always commented positively on it, and for me, too. I learned a lot from that multidisciplinarity. And then uh, about three years ago, I moved to the anthropology department at the same institution, still the new school. I was uh, um, invited to move over there to start a new track in anthropology and design and technology. So over there, I think that, that that move has supplemented my repertoire with kind of New methodological sensibilities and new critical concepts. So, I think going across, moving across all these terrains has really informed my scholarship. And I think those different sensibilities have shaped the book that that we're talking about. Uh, And how did you conceive of this book? Well, this book was a um, started out as several articles. I am a uh, columnist for a journal called Places Journal. Mm-hmm. It's an open-access journal, a venue for public scholarship focusing on architecture, urbanism, and landscape. It started in the 80s as a partnership between MIT and Berkeley and then became its own nonprofit that's supported by dozens of design schools around the country and the world. I actually think it's a really interesting model for open access scholarship rather than having authors pay a thousand dollars or so to have their work be made publicly available this invites um, kind of institutional partners to contribute money up front that then allows its contributors um, to share their work freely to make their work freely available so a lot of these pieces started in places um, which has been a really fantastic uh, writing opportunity and a really um, rewarding publishing experience for me, given the quality of the editing, the fact that you get to work with image editors. So just working with them for the past decade has been foundational and just very inspiring for me. Um, Places Journal has a partnership with Princeton University Press, an imprint called Places Books. So I was invited to take a few of my already published pieces, remix them, supplement them with new material, um, and I've published over two dozen pieces for for places, so it was a little difficult to think about what would be the right mix. Um, <laughs> so I asked the editors and asked some readers um, on Twitter, actually, and uh, <laughs> the uh, kind of computational urbanism theme seemed to be the one that rose to the top. So I picked a signature, one of the signature articles, which was called A City is Not a Computer, and then supplemented that with some other ones about digital urbanism and smart cities, but there has been quite a bit written about that topic over the past decade in particular, but for much longer as well. And I wanted to expand the discussion so that it wasn't just about digital urbanism. That rem- It expanded the notion of what um, reminded us of the limitations of thinking about epistemology as smartness mm-hmm. and reminded us that cities are smart in so many different ways and have, has, have historically been very intelligent environments, way beyond kind of how intelligence has collapsed into smartness. So that's mm-hmm. why I took the titular article, Cities on a Computer. I started off the book. I decided I wanted to start with kind of an object lesson, a material case study that encapsulated a lot of the con- critical concepts and ideologies I was talking about. So I started off with a chapter on the dashboard, mm-hmm. uh, kind of the control room, where a lot of smartness kind of converges on a screen or a control center. Then we had the Cities on a Computer article. And then I wanted to, again, expand that discussion to say that we can look at other institutions and ways of knowing to show us the paucity of smartness as a way of thinking about knowledge. Mm. So the third chapter is about libraries and other knowledge infrastructures. Um, And then the final chapter is about maintenance and care and the wisdom that is inherent in not only the innovating new technologies, but the maintaining what we already have.
0: Mm -hmm. That is fascinating. And I love how the book is you know really a dialogical piece of work as you explain it um, you know it's not just an author writing it, but it's this process where um, you interact with your readers over time through uh, the places journal so uh, that's that's really wonderful um, and you know you mentioned sort of your critical approach to smart cities and Sort of an invitation to rethink computational urban intelligence as the only kind of um, urban intelligence. So I'm wondering what is at stake in asserting that the city is not a computer or. What kinds of urban futures become possible when we understand urban intelligence beyond computation or algorithms? In terms of what's at stake,
1: it would be the types of knowledge, the types of wisdom that are built into cities and the communities and other species that live there that are bracketed out when we try to fit everything into a form of algorithmic intelligence and then make it visible on a dashboard, Mm -hmm. um, for instance. So we have things like indigenous knowledge we have um, kind of the wisdom that's inherent in ecological thinking about how we coexist and are, have to serve as stewards for other species, which is really important for thinking about kind of urban resilience and climate change, for instance. Um, we miss the knowledges that are um, uh, developed by marginalized communities that uh, are obviously in, in uh, developed in concert with kind of a lot of smart technologies. But one of the some of the challenges there are that a lot of marginalized, particularly communities of color, are either overrepresented in Mm -hmm. in a lot of computational urbanism models in terms of uh, the fact that they are disproportionately represented in things like predictive predictive policing algorithms, Mm -hmm. um, public services databases, or um, they're marginalized in that they don't have necessarily the degree of connectivity that allows them to be plugged into the network to take advantage of of its affordances and efficiencies. So, um, Just the other ways of knowing the diversity of communities, the uh, value systems that are inherent in those epistemologies also. When we uh, reduce a city to a computer, Mm -hmm. those things are um, kind of bracketed out of not only urban imaginaries, but also planning processes, Mm -hmm. design processes, and then uh, the administration and maintenance of the cities that we build and live in together. I will say also that even though the book is called "A City Is Not a Computer," in the end, in the conclusion, I kind of come to the con- come to the conclusion that a city is a computer. There are <laughs> valuable things to be learned by thinking about what what we can datafy in a city. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's great if we have a public health system that is distributing its resources more efficiently. If we can have a public transit system that runs more efficiently and equitably, and if data can help with that, that's fantastic. But I we also have to supplement with supplement that way of thinking with other metaphorical ways of thinking so a city is a computer but it's also an ecology it's also a machine it's also a social body so I think triangulating these metaphors is actually much more efficient not efficient it's much more productive mm-hmm. and inclusive than the more reductive kind of uh, city city's computer model that a lot of smart city developers are
0: using mm-hmm. indeed and you know I was actually really struck with um with the work you're doing with metaphors um, to understand cities. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on uh, what metaphors do for you in understanding cities and um, the kinds of knowledge that make a city a city. Sure.
1: So I didn't really set out to write a book about metaphors, but I <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm choosing as my titular piece, you know, a, a, an article called, or a, a chapter called A City is Not a Computer, I've kind of dug that hole for myself, so I have <laughs> to engage with it. But shortly after the A City is Not a Computer article was published several years ago, someone reminded me that, oh, this reminds me of Christopher Alexander's article, or, or chapter A City is Not a Tree, um, which I had read a while ago, but I had forgotten about. Christopher mm-hmm. Alexander, as you might know if you're into any type of computation and urbanism, is a, is a, um, an architect whose work has been really influential to computer scientists, programmers, kind of, um, uh, uh, what do you call them, like, um, data kind of uh, uh, design patterns thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so I engaged with his article, a city is not a tree to see, which is a very formalist way of thinking, because he's arguing that if we think about a city as a tree, that's kind of the city as a rigid branching structure, which is typically the way master planners think about Mm -hmm. it. It's a city designed for the master plan um, to be formally legible, he contrasts that with the city as a semi-lattice, which is something that's more kind of intricately interconnected, maybe in productively entangled, more organic growth. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit paradoxical because you tend, we tend to associate the tree itself with the organic. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, more recent scholarship about kind of arboreal formalism, um, shows us that if we look at the, um, the, uh, kind of the fungi network set that mm-hmm. connect trees, that there's a lot more formal complexity and multi-directional communication that's going on there. But Alexander tends to think of the tree as the more pejorative um, model or metaphor because it's a very reductive and formalist and kind of rigid in its structure. So so the metaphors uh, shape the way cities are imagined, mm-hmm. designed, administered, maintained. Uh, So if we're using metaphors like a city as a computer, which in recent years, a lot of um, kind of tech company developers or people who come from the tech world who are proposing to build cities from scratch have done, have said that they want to build, wanted to build cities from the internet up or take kind of um, internet of internet of things models and use those as a formal and kind of functional and logistical model for how a city should operate that already kind of sets the parameters for who gets to engage in those discussions or mm-hmm. who, whose imaginaries count. So it's already determining kind of what communities, what participants mm-hmm. are um, permitted to engage in the envisioning process. And then it determines what um, kind of agencies or in many cases, corporations are, are contracted to engage in the formal development of a plan, the administration of a city um, and, uh, uh, Whose voices count in kind of the democratic democratic processes that operate there?
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: all the way from kind of the envisioning to the making to the living in to the maintaining of a city, the metaphors we choose really set the parameters for how those uh, various processes are structured and who whose country who can contribute to them.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely, and I love that you know by bringing in multiple metaphors, you give rise to more questions than coming up with a certain sort of assertion, just like the questions you asked. And I find this so generative um, that you remind us we should ask like, who are actors within the city? Why are they um, doing what they're doing? How does it impact different communities? So um, this is something that I really appreciated about the book. Um, (laughs) Well, another striking thread throughout the book was how you know, how current it was. And I think this was a virtue of how you wrote it over a um, over dialogical process and over time. But it was really refreshing to see um, how you weaved in the pandemic to the book. Uh, and, you know, I think there was a moment where, you know, the pandemic seemed to um, direct us to sort of these computational ways of, thinking, and planning the city, but you urge us to stick with sort of three-dimensional, everyday, and indigenous ways of knowing a city beyond a screen or a dashboard. So I'm curious about how the pandemic reshaped or reinforced your orientation to urbanism. Sure. So I proposed this book before the pandemic. And then when the pandemic happened,
1: first of all, I wondered who, given the fact that we had these new pressing concerns of people dying and a lot of people predicting that Um, the density of a city was um, a a liability and that Mm -hmm. maybe this is something that's happened multiple times throughout history. Something tragic happens and we keep questioning, like, is the city a a functional model for humans living together? So there was a lot of, there were a lot of think pieces early in the stages of the pandemic asking, you know, are cities dead? Mm -hmm. Again, we've heard this question before. So I was really wondering, you know, what's the, what's the utility of this book? Does it need to exist? (laughs) <laughs> How will I have to reshape my arguments if I do continue with this project to address what's happening in the world right now? So um, ultimately, I realized I kind of steeled myself by thinking even though a lot of the original articles were written about timely projects, mm-hmm. things that in some cases have since um, dissipated or collapsed since I wrote about them, like Sidewalk Labs Toronto, like a project that I wrote about in a piece called Data Bodies and Code Space, it's about kind of quantifying the human condition for public mm-hmm. health purposes. That doesn't really seem to be going on at full steam anymore. So even if some of the things I've written about in these timely articles for places have since morphed or uh, disappeared, I still wanted to point out that they are asking um, enduring questions and Mm -hmm. questions that have deep histories too. Even though the manifestation today is about contemporary technology, we've asked similar questions and had similar visions for centuries, if not millennia, in relation Mm -hmm. to the technologies du jour, whatever they were in Medieval period, or the Classical period, um, or other times in, in human history. So it really shaped my scope of the, the kind of the temporal scale that I wanted to talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, I really wanted to make sure that I addressed how the pandemic was um, uh, shifting our answers to some of the questions that I had been originally been asking, but I didn't want it to be a book about the pandemic mm-hmm. or about the movements for racial justice that were especially prominent last year and throughout this year. So I wanted to address both of those questions or those issues to show how they have reshaped um, the dialogues and the questions and answers that I'm addressing in each of the four chapters and the introduction and conclusion, but allow the book to also speak to a time before and after those particular kind of historical historical moments also. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and I think the book very clearly does that. Um, And among the examples you give in the book is the library. So in the book, libraries emerge as social and ontological knowledge infrastructures rather than objective and efficient platforms, which, um, you know, some, you know, urban planners or thinkers conceptualize them like. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what does library as infrastructure reveal that library as platform might conceal? Well,
1: this again gets us to these kind of epistemologies and politics of different metaphors that we've been mm-hmm. talking about in relation to the city. <laughs> and I really wanted to include the library chapter in here because I've been writing about libraries for 20 years. <laughs> My first book was about library architecture. Mm-hmm. My dissertation was about library architecture. And I'm on the board of the Metropolitan New York Library Council in New York City. And I work have worked with libraries kind of as a, as a contributor, a friend, uh, kind of a, a, a participant in different um, kind of on the ground processes in libraries for a long time. And I'm really committed to them as a flawed but exemplary model of a functional social infrastructure that could be even more functional if it were funded well and valued <laughs> to the degree that it should be. But, you know, some smart city folks were kind of wondering, you know, what does a light? why put a library chapter in a book about smart cities? Because in part, because those things are never, are not never, but rarely thought in dialogue with each other. Mm. Um, uh, but, that's exactly the point of why I wanted to put it in there, to encourage people to think about all the questions we're asking, the epistemological, political questions that we're asking about both the promises to smart, of smart cities and the risks they present mm-hmm. are also things that are, have been addressed, in some cases very successfully, in libraries. Mm-hmm. So concerns about data governance, data privacy, which is often what kills some uh, smart city projects like in Sidewalk Toronto. Those are questions libraries have been addressing. To a great degree of success for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, also, uh, the platform metaphor. Going to specifically to your to your question about the metaphors, there has been a lot of talk about libraries as platforms, which borrows from you know tech development discourse. Also, a lot of discussion about cities themselves as platforms, often platforms for things like entrepreneurial development and capital development. So they're often framed in, in kind of entrepreneurial or financial terms. Mm-hmm. This is the way a lot of libraries increasingly have to kind of sell themselves to city governments to prove their relevance in an age of the internet and kind of privatized information services, is that we can be a platform for economic opportunity and entrepreneurial development. And I think it's fantastic that libraries can do those things, but that is not all that it's capable of. And it also really reduces the possibilities for human development and the values of human intelligence and communal sharing of knowledge. It doesn't just have economic and kind of job, uh, kind of job application approaches or uh, benefits. Um, so this is where I feel like the infrastructure model, which is again based on an article I wrote in 2014 about libraries infrastructure, can be more capacious and encompassing of these different end goals, these different telos, um, mm-hmm. kind of purposes that that community um, education and community knowledge serves. It's in part about it's about memory. It's about community pride. It's about um, It's about tradition. It's about kind of the different um, uh, public values that those different ways of knowing represent. Um, And we have this institution of the library that has historically represented and recognized that it's not just about data-driven things and digital knowledges that matter. It's also about things like the the analog, artifacts, embodied knowledges, oral histories, indigenous intelligences, um, kind of community knowledges that come together and, and manifest in practice or in performance. So, public mm-hmm. libraries have historically been really good at recognizing um, the the myriad forms of knowledge that matter in a community. Mm-hmm. And the infrastructure model also says that uh, a library is, a, as Eric Kleinenberg also writes about, a social infrastructure. It serves as a as a service, a resource for for communities in places where other social services fall short, as things like childcare welfare, senior services, homeless services are defunded, underfunded in many communities. Libraries are often expected, you know, much to their acclaim, but not necessarily something we should celebrate. Mm-hmm. They do much more than they should in some cases, or they than they should be asked to do. But they do, in fact, serve as these um, uh, kind of wide-ranging social infrastructures, and that has to be addressed also. it's That goes way beyond what the library as a platform, you mm-hmm. know, a tech platform metaphor can encompass.
0: Mm-hmm, definitely. And it's very interesting to hear how, you know, certain audiences have been perplexed by the library's um, place in the book. Because, you know, even the way you talk about it as a social infrastructure, I think it really speaks to themes of maintenance and care that you're addressing uh, in the book as well. Um, And my next question is about that. So could you speak to the possibilities and limits of caring urban maintenance? And, you know, for that, I especially have in mind um, your assertion that, um, you know, maintenance is a form of caring for the city that exists rather than, um, you know, only keeping our sight on a city that is yet to come. Um, so, yeah, I'm curious to hear about your thoughts on the possibilities and limits of care?
1: Sure. So there has been a lot of discussion
0: about care, especially from kind of
1: feminists and Mm -hmm. especially black (laughs) feminists in front of communities and particularly in recent years. And um, when I wrote the original piece, Maintenance and Care, maybe three or four years ago, I really wanted to bring together, it's kind of a similar approach that I took to the book is I, I use this metaphor of grafting. I wanted to graft together the discourses from different disciplines and show how going back to what we were just talking about, how it could be really productive for urban planners, urban administrators to graft their way of thinking onto that of librarians and archivists. And in this case, in writing about maintenance and care, I wanted to say that we could really productively think about how maintenance, repair, and care operate, do different rhetorical work, different political work, in different different contexts. If we graft together the way that civil engineers are talking about it, Um, economists are talking about it, sociologists, anthropologists, people who work in kind of data science, um, feminist theorists. um, How if we grafted together all of these different knowledges, we could realize that there are some interesting and productive potentials for cross-pollination between these different realms of maintenance, repair, and care. And one of the things I also came to realize is they kind of operate at different scales and we need to realize that we have to have kind of all of them working together ecologically to have a healthy system.
0: Mm-hmm. So if you're
1: going to be maintaining a city, you also have to care for your maintenance workers. Mm-hmm. And this is something we saw a lot in the pandemic is mm-hmm. that um, we realized that a lot of the folks who were charged with making the system keep running, keeping the trains running, literally, keeping the grocery store shelves stocked, um, maintaining the public health of, a, of an urban community, these folks had to be cared for, in order for them to do their job. And the tools and technologies they use to do those jobs had to be repaired regularly as well. So just seeing how we have to be thinking about care, repair and maintenance altogether for a system to function. Uh, Similarly, if we look from the other direction, in order for our care workers, our home healthcare workers, our healthcare providers to do their jobs, we have to maintain public transit systems and other types of kind of urban systems that allow them to do what they need to do the care work they need to do. So, it's thinking across these scales and realizing that we have to kind of um, combine these discourses in order to have a fully functional system.
0: Mm-hmm, definitely. But you also are just to not romanticize care, which I find so important. Yes, and that's not an
1: original argument to me. I'm quoting yeah. <laughs> folks, especially again, a lot of feminist theorists who were talking about um, and and, uh, and information studies folks as well. I'm just going to quote one in particular, Fobazi etter as a librarian and information studies scholar who had wrote a book that really circulated widely in the information studies um, world called, um, I'm forgetting the title of it, but the concept, the key concept is vocational awe. Mm. So it's this idea, and we could apply this concept to teachers, professors, healthcare workers, and that the profession is often often framed as a calling. It's almost a sort of religious calling. And because you're committed to public service, therefore it's, you should be expected to show up out of love for the job and a mm-hmm. sense of duty to your communities, to your patrons, despite the fact that you're not paid terribly well, you're not provided with the protective material that you need, um, your your services are undervalued on a uh, kind of on a broader social level, and that in many cases you have to put yourself in precarious positions to serve your communities. Mm-hmm. So this is where the fetishization or the romanticization of care can actually uh, uh, not only devalue um, but uh, and patronize. But can put care workers outside the realm of care themselves can put them in harm's way, so mm-hmm. that's one example of where care um, care can actually be fetishized to a dangerous degree mm-hmm, definitely
0: um you mentioned grafting uh a little bit, and I want to get into your methodology, so I'm wondering if you could elaborate on um how you specifically understand grafting and whether grafting has been a methodological orientation for you.
1: I'm really glad that you asked that question about methodology because, you know, I was just taught a class yesterday about what is ethnography with a student <laughs> and with my students. And, you know, of course, we didn't come to a concrete single sentence answer mm-hmm. to that question. but but um realizing that uh, uh, Carol McGranahan, for instance, talks about ethnography as kind of a um, an epistemology, a method a way of writing, a way Mm -hmm. of sensibility. So it's all of these things simultaneously. And I really like, and I'm grateful to you for proposing that grafting could be seen as a method. And I really like to think about that. That's something I'm going to take away and kind of borrow (laughs) in the future, I'm sure. It really fits into this realm of experimental methods that I really appreciate. And um, this was inspired, my look into grafting was inspired. I was asked to write a catalog essay for an exhibition at a University of uh, Toronto gallery a few years ago where the theme was grafting, Mm -hmm. Uh, and that got me, set me out on kind of doing some research on the history of grafting. I came to realize that it's a really useful metaphor, again, Mm and also a method that can apply in a lot of different contexts. It also just so happened that my engagement with the Christopher Alexander, A City is Not a Tree um, article or or, um, kind of work in the introduction and conclusion of the book gave me a nice platform to mix metaphors here to (laughs) integrate this discussion of grafting. And I think grafting applies both to my method for writing the book and researching the book and to the way I'd like to think about smart cities. Because Mm -hmm. first of all, going back to your very first question about the different disciplinary trajectories that I have had and how they inform the book, I feel like I I tried to make the books that it was grafting knowledges onto each other, Mm -hmm. citing broadly and realizing, for example, you know, what like city planners can say to librarians and vice versa and how, what maintenance workers can teach to tech developers. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to graft those citational politics together and you know the, the uh, different intelligences that I'm drawing on for the book. But then also, I think like a more responsible way of thinking about developing cities can be grafting epistemologies and methodologies onto each other. And this mm-hmm. is how smart cities are often, um, uh, c- can be more, maybe more productively conceived of is rather than building tabula rasa onto mm-hmm. um, uh, what we think of as uh, kind of a, 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 a empty terrain, building mm-hmm. from the internet up, realizing that there are already not only indigenous histories there, other species ways of being in those places that preceded our coming into being in our kind of plan to develop that area, but also that there are other human knowledges, kind of community wisdom that if we want to, if we want to more sensibly and responsibly integrate Digital technologies and forms of digital urbanism. We should be thinking about how to res- how to respectfully graft them onto what's already there, mm-hmm. so that the the pre existing and the new, the mechanical and the organic, the novel and the history
0: can productively inform each other. Mm-hmm. This is fascinating, and I think you know even the voice of the book speaks to this this method or methodology of grafting. Um, because, you know, throughout the book, you address a we and this form of address made so much sense to me because much of your work seems to arise out of collaborations within and beyond academy to me. And even in our conversation, you know, you have been alluding to your work with librarians, artists, um, as well as uh, academics. So I'm curious about how you see collaboration. And what did a collaborator we do for you uh, in this book? So this was a, a, a big
1: question that I was asking myself when I was <laughs> reworking the existing work and writing the new pieces because I have historically used we often in writing. And I realized that that's a political choice and it can be a difficult or a kind of the wrong one in some context. Mm. Because the royal we um, assumes kind of a universal experience um, it can gloss over a lot of historical mm-hmm. differences and injustices. But I also have seen some academics try to address or reject the we by trying to include, um, to incorporate inclusive lists of who specifically the subjects are they're talking to. So have these sentences where you'll list multiple subjects. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, I try, I experimented with that with a bit, for a bit. But then I realized like, oh, but I, then I left these people out. Mm-hmm. Or if I try to include everybody I'm talking to, this sentence itself is going to be an entire page long, Mm -hmm. and it's not going to make for very pleasant reading. So part (laughs) of it was a balancing of um, a rhetorical kind of political obligation to want to be inclusive, but to not to assume universal experience. Mm -hmm. But also to, it was an aesthetic choice to want to make a voice that feels inviting Mm -hmm. and relatable, And it doesn't have, you know, um, 300 word long sentences that makes it an an accessible book. So part of it was a balancing of these political and aesthetic kind of um, uh, considerations. And ultimately, I wrote in the introduction that I use we because I want to invite everybody to see themselves in this, Mm -hmm. but I want that we to also make room for difference and for disagreement. Mm -hmm. Um, So I hope the book is written kind of in a sufficiently friendly tone that people (laughs) Don't feel that I'm kind of dragging you along to the universal, the royal we that you can still feel included and invited, but free to disagree and to have different experiences. Yeah. Um, and this speaks to your question about uh, collaboration. So yeah, in the acknowledgments, I try to acknowledge not only the different librarians, the different folks who have invited me to develop parts of this project, to, as you know, presenting them at their institutions or workshopping work, but also my students. Mm-hmm. A lot of this, a lot of this work developed in con- in concert in, the cl- in discussions in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, so having really diverse uh, student bodies, a lot of my classes have um, students from maybe, I don't know, between eight and 12 different disciplines in them. And I really just love that cross-pollination. And we managed to develop a really nice, respectful way of sharing knowledge where we're not kind of lording our specialized intelligence over one another. <laughs> unpack specialized terms and feel free to ask for people to define particular terminology. So I think just that rapport and that ethos is something that um, uh, I wanted to incorporate into the the body of the book too. So it's the collaborative framing of all the ideas that made their way into the book. Um, Mm -hmm. I wanted to kind of formally manifest in the structure of the book also.
0: Yeah, I have to say, I'm so glad you brought this up because this was also something that I especially appreciated about the book. Um, Having just recently completed my PhD, like I love how you included your students in the citational politics of the book and you cite your students' work, uh, which is not something we see very often. And you cite this experience of teaching. Um, So I'm wondering if, you know, if teaching is also a form of grafting, uh, in your view, and if you could speak a bit more about what teaching has done for your thinking and the book.
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, teaching and scholarship. I mean, of course, I do tons of service too, but I have to say not that (laughs) all that is the most edifying experience. (laughs) But um, teaching and and scholarship are kind of on equal par for me in terms of, you know, what my obligations and Mm -hmm. the joys are of the academy. And they've always informed one another and kind of bi-directionally. And I'd have to say like my committee, my service, my community service is definitely in there as well. And part of that kind of whole ecology of cross-pollination. A lot of the articles I've written for places, many of which then, as I mentioned, came into this book. I kind of, the book is essentially kind of a mix-up or mash-up of maybe eight or nine different pieces, plus a whole bunch of new material. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the pieces when I originally wrote them for places were because I would be designing a new course about something. And I'd really want to find an article that talks about how we put these two or three ideas in dialogue with one another, but I wanted to show it through artwork so it would be accessible for students. And I couldn't Mm -hmm. find the specific piece I was looking for. So I figured, well, I guess this summer I'm going to have to write that piece. So a lot of the pieces I wrote for places were pieces that I really wanted to find when I was teaching something, but it didn't exist. So I was kind of writing for an imagined or a future student audience, really. And I'm really glad to see that when they ultimately are published, that they have audiences and kind of interlocutors that go beyond just students. Um, but, yeah, that's really a primary audience or group of interlocutors I have in mind when I'm writing the articles. And then, obviously, as they make their way into the book, those articles um, as chapters, the students kind of um, uh, the, the dialogue with students is there as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so. Uh, so much of my research is informed by things that happen in the classroom and um, and it's it's been kind of just a throughout my entire career it's been a very much a a kind of multi-directional cross-pollination experience.
0: Mm-hmm. This is wonderful. Um, and lastly, what is next for you? What are some new projects, questions, or courses or teaching uh, that you're working on right now? Uh, well, <laughs> I am doing a couple projects that are related to the the book that
1: we're just talking about right now. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, my work on um, uh, trees that I talk about and grafting that I talk about in the introduction and conclusion. This is something that I kind of spun off and developed into an article that's actually going to come out next week. It might be after this this specific podcast episode mm-hmm. airs or it goes public. And that's about tree um, models of thinking, how historically in Western and non-Western cultures we have kind of thought with and through trees, mm-hmm. um, so I'm looking at kind of things like the tree of knowledge, formal structures, decision, kind of um, the way we do classification through kind of um, by working our way down decision trees. Then I look at kind of the ma- machine intelligence and the artificial intelligence model of thinking through decision trees and random forests, which mm-hmm. are different forms of algorithms. And then I talk about the role trees have played in democratic processes and how trees in many historical settings and historical examples have been sites where people gather to make important, momentous decisions. Mm. So I'm looking at how trees have played a role in these organic, inorganic, historical, contemporary, metaphorical, and literal ways of making decisions. Mm. Um, So that's a piece that was really informed by the book. That's just an article. But then uh, I'm Thinking about, hopefully, I, I put in an application. I haven't had a leave in many years, about a decade. <laughs> so hopefully I'll get a sabbatical next year. And I'd really like to work on two projects, one of which is um, about furniture. Uh, so there, again, that we can see like trees and wood becoming an influence again. Mm. So um, I have uh, written several articles over the years about how uh, the way it's related to what we talk about in the book, how the way we design our material world embodies different epistemologies. And I've mm-hmm. thought about that from the scale of data models and interfaces and gadgets to architectures and urban plans and infrastructure. So I thought of cross scales. And I'd really like to focus on the furniture scale. So I've written some things about closets and bookshelves and desks and beds and, and, um, and dressers and secret drawers and, and kind of history of furniture design and how that shapes our relationship to media. And uh, our ways of knowing. So, I'd really like to write a, a, an experimentally formatted book that's kind of formatted like a furniture catalog. Wow. It's actually an academic text that's looking at different historical furniture categories of furnishings and seeing how they actually serve as intellectual furnishings, kind of like scaffoldings for mm. thinking. So, that's one. And well. the other one is about sound design. So I don't know if you want me to go into that, but that's the, that's the second project. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's up to you. <laughs> We'd well, love to hear if you'd
0: like to tell us.
1: I'm <laughs> well, sure I just realized I was talking a lot about the first one. I didn't know if you wanted me to go on keep going on, but, <laughs> but sure. So that one is, I've written about sound also in mm-hmm. several pieces over the years, including my last book, the one from 2017. I have two chapters about sound in that book. But this for this new book, this new project, I published a piece maybe three years ago now about um, things called Things That Beep. Mm. It's about the sounds that we design into the objects and spaces of our material world. So everything from the way a tea kettle whistle, tea kettle whistles to the sound of a door, a car door closing, to the sounds that our, our snack bags make when they crinkle, to the sounds that uh, the whooshing sound of an email being sent, to the dings that our phones make as alerts. To the the whoosh of a squirt of axe body spray, like all of these things have been engineered. Mm-hmm. We kind of think of them as incidental; they're a product of kind of physics and mechanics. But in many cases, they have been intentionally engineered to produce a signature sound. So I'm looking at how the the history of sound design in material and virtual gadgets, or material and virtual kind of objects, we guess we could say, uh, shapes subjectivity, embodies certain politics and are actually little kind of mini symphonies that are ripe for cultural analysis to talk about what we value, what humans' relationship is to technology. So it, that, that's the second project.
0: Wow, these sound really fascinating, and we'll be looking out for these works. Well, thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, so thank you very much, Shannon, for joining us and for your insights. Well,
1: thank you so much. It's been, it's been a great pleasure
0: talking with you. Of course. The pleasure is all mine. I'm your host, Alizar Arjant. This discussion of A City is Not a Computer, Other Urban Intelligences, published by Princeton University Press in 2020, uh, sorry, 2021, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.